Welcome to the Living Godcast. Our prayer is that this message speaks to you, impacts you, and inspires you. Please enjoy today's message, and we invite you to contact us if you need prayer, appreciate this word, or would like more information on Church of the Living God. Be blessed today. All right. Good morning. How's everyone doing this morning? Good. Thank you. Pam's doing good. Everybody else is talking. I'm just kidding. Glad to see everybody. So glad you're in the house. Uh, we are continuing our series on slaying dragons. Uh, also, let me apologize. I woke up this morning with something happening in here. So I'm a little stuffy and nasally this morning. So I've taken medicine and it's not doing its thing. So praying that God clears it up while I'm talking so you don't have to listen to a bunch of sniffles the whole time. Um uh, I'll try to pull out the microphone, too, if I need to. All right. So we're continuing with this book, Slaying Dragons. We're in Chapter 4 of the book called The Zeitgeist. Just some review from uh, last week, which we'll do after we do the offering. Thank you, Brother Sam. (laughs) As he walks up. That's awesome. Let's pray over the offering, pray over any needs, and then we'll uh, we'll do the review. Man, I am just out of it today. Jeez. It gets worse. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We ask, Lord, that you would minister to every need that's represented in this place today, God. We ask that you would bless this offering. We ask, Lord, that you would open up our ears to hear, that our hearts would be the good ground for the good seed of the word. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. (laughs) That's right. I'm getting there, though. So, review. The zeitgeist. Zeitgeist is a German word. It's been part of the English uh, lexicon since the 1830s. And it literally means time, spirit, zeit means time, geist means spirit or ghost. And it's a term that's been used in English to um, express and define the values of an age or an era. So there's a cultural wind that blows. There's a societal um, evolution, we'll say, that every society goes through. And in these eras, as it progresses, the zeitgeist changes. The zeitgeist can be relative to uh, geography. It can be relative to religion, value systems, obviously. Uh, he makes the comparison earlier in this chapter that the zeitgeist in Germany in the 1940s was different than the zeitgeist in Britain, Russia, or the U.S., right? Um, and so you can have these different eras that are defined by different value systems, that are defined by different um, approaches and outcomes, but what he notes is that whatever zeitgeist it is, wherever it is, it, is, it always seems to be anti-Christ, okay? Uh, whether it is Nazi Germany, whether it is Soviet Russia, whether it is 21st century United States, tolerant, warm and fuzzy, everything's good but God. Um, there's a zeitgeist, there's a spirit, there's a wind behind everything that we face. And, and it's, it's cultural, it influences the culture. And it puts the church, or it should put the church, at odds with the culture. The scary thing is that a lot of times it doesn't. The church tends to blend in. And when I say the church, I mean the universal church, the overall church, not C.O.L.G. Winchester. Right, we're here in this era and this time. We're doing our best to be countercultural. But, but again, back to the historical perspective in World War II, the, the Catholic Church largely receded into the background so that it could survive and endure. And, and it, there's a lot of people that still have issues with that 70 years later, 80 years later. And so uh, we don't want to be that kind of a church that re- recedes into the background. 
that hides in the bushes of the age. We want to stand against what the culture, what the demonic way of thinking is expressing. And that's what the zeitgeist is. It is the demonic way of thinking of an age. And um, he talks about how that Satan effectively communicated his way of thinking to Eve. And then that brought mankind's fall. But God has an opposite way of thinking. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. I want to read this passage. Um, it is, it's from um, it's page 152 in the ebook. It's on page 64 of the physical book. Just again in recap here. It says, The spirit of Antichrist sets itself against Christ. Everything Jesus taught and represented is its enemy. This is how Christians end up in the crossfire. As we've already discussed, the great dragon has no teeth. Remember we talked about that at length last week. The great dragon has no teeth. He has only a silver tongue. His weapon is deception. He works through the minds of men to influence the world. Those of us with the mind of Christ are set in opposition to that demonic movement. This is the reason the enemy targets us. So the goal is, as we have the mind of Christ, that our way of thinking becomes more like Christ's, and that becomes more counter to the world's way of thinking. Paul said that the, the world becomes foolishness to the believer, and that the believers become foolishness to the world. There's this ever-growing gap. The closer we get to Jesus, the less like the world, the less understandable we should become. It's a scary thing to think that Christianity in our, in our country in particular, but especially in Western culture, is very, very uh, dependent upon appealing to culture, okay? Appealing to culture instead of standing in opposition to it. Now, listen, I'm a young guy. I like lights. I like music. I like, I like all that. Does it have a place in the church? Maybe in some places. But I don't think it's our job to look like a nightclub right? I don't think it's our place. First of all, it wouldn't work here, okay? It might work in Florida or California or New York. It doesn't work here, and it's not gonna, and we're not gonna try it, okay? But regardless, the church is not called to be copycats. We're not called to be anything other than what God has called us, us to be. We have a niche. We have a, we have a market, so to speak, that God has called us to, a market of souls, a harvest that has our name on it, that God has uniquely equipped Church of the Living God for. And the greatest disservice that we could do those folks is to bend to the zeitgeist, to the culture. The greatest disservice we could do is try to be something that God has not called us to be, to be a church that's not, that we're not called to be. We're not called to be Bethel. We're not called to be Elevation. We're not called to be uh, Southland. Right? We're, we're not called to be church of God. That's not what we're called to be. Amen? We're called to be us. And what God has equipped in this house is, is something that is meant to be effective if utilized correctly. Effective against the spirit of the age in Winchester in central Kentucky. That's what this is about. But we've got to understand the spirit of the age. We've got to understand. It is bigger, and it is creeping in. I don't know if you've noticed, but it's getting ever closer to our little town. The things that 10 years ago, 20 years ago, were only in New York are now on our doorstep. Our, our doorstep. And what are we going to do? Are we going to recognize it? Or are we going to bend to the will of the culture? Are we going to say, look, I'm sorry you feel this way, but it's not what God says, and we're not okay with it. That, that's going to be the challenge, amen? So we're going to start um, on page, oh gosh, just lost it. Look at that. We're going to start 
on page, there we go, page 68 in the physical book and uh, 160 in the ebook. All right. It's, the section is entitled the, the Cross Divine Wisdom. So we're talking about the Christ-like way of thinking that is opposite of the zeitgeist, okay? It says the divine way of thinking is so contrary to the satanic way that when God made his most brilliant move, Satan never saw it coming. Pastors said for years, had the princes of the world known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That's what he's about to make here. It says, Paul says of the divine wisdom, none of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, 1 Corinthians 2.8. What does that mean? It does not mean that if people had understood who Jesus was, that they would, they would have made him Lord. That's not what that means. It means that if, if Satan had understood that he was facilitating the way of salvation, he would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The biggest mistake he ever made was taking Jesus to the cross. But he was so blinded, so ignorant to the plan of God that he played right into it. And really, truthfully, without Satan's part, we wouldn't have salvation. Isn't that fascinating? We wouldn't have it. Now, I'm not giving him credit. I'm giving him credit for being dumb, for being ignorant, for playing right into God's hand. Amen? And, and that's a truth that we have to hold within ourselves as well. The devil does not know what God's wanting to do with your life. The only thing he knows is what he hears. That's all he knows. And even then, his understanding can be dim. And just because God has prophesied or promised you something and the devil heard it, it doesn't mean that the devil knows how to stop it. And we feel that way sometimes. I've felt that way. I've been getting words since I was a little guy, littler guy. And when I get those words, I, I remember there's been powerful words where I'm like, oh, man, now i got a big crosshairs on my back. Oh, man, maybe, maybe. But had the prince of the world known, had the devil known, he wouldn't have done what he did. There's things in us that he does not understand, that he's trying to fight on one hand, but God's doing something totally different, and he's going to utilize what the devil's doing to facilitate the promises coming to pass. That's a nugget that I wasn't planning on talking about. Amen. So not only does Satan deceive people, but he has also deceived himself. The Bible says he's the father of lies and the truth is not in him. It's not in him. He deceived himself. His evil way of thinking saw the cross as weakness and failure when it was actually the power and the wisdom of God. It's, it's very debatable as to what the enemy's mindset could have been around the cross. I tend to believe that that he saw God in Jesus. Remember, the, the, the fullness of the Godhead bodily was in Christ, right? He saw God in Jesus. He recognized who he was. Every time demonic spirits addressed Jesus, they knew exactly who he was. And so Satan did too. But I believe, I believe that he thought that God had made a mistake and put himself in a situation where he was now mortal and could be killed. So I believe that Satan thought that if he had killed God, that, that he himself would have been the most powerful thing left, okay? That's debatable. It's not a heaven or hell issue, right? This is not something we have to debate for salvation. Regardless, he played into the hand of God and helped bring about salvation for all mankind. Uh, the book says God's wisdom looks nothing like human wisdom. This is what we must recognize. It exists in a category entirely by itself, utterly separate from the world's way of thinking, and accessible to humans only by faith in Christ Jesus. Accessible to humans 
only by faith in Christ Jesus. You can have the mind of Christ. You can think the way God thinks, but you can only do it through Jesus. No enlightenment, no philosophy, no other way, no other door, amen? If we try to fight spiritual battles with techniques familiar to us in the flesh, we will fail to defeat Satan and even ourselves and even find ourselves fighting on his side. For example, in a physical fight, anger, rage, and hatred are your friends. They light a fire inside you that will hurl you at your enemy like a deadly weapon. But spiritual battles are not fought this way. Hate, anger, and vengeance are the enemy's methods of gaining justice. Okay? Another term for that would be, that you'll hear a lot in deliverance circles, would be legal ground. Okay, legal standing. If the devil can gain a legal foothold in your life, then he can move. Now there's, again, I think that's even debatable as to what legality the enemy has. But we do know that the Bible says for us not to give place to the devil. Neither give place to the devil. We know the Bible says resist the devil and he will flee. Submit yourselves to God and resist the devil. Those two things go together. All right, you got to submit yourself to God. That means to his word, his standards, his way of thinking. And then you resist the devil the way Jesus did. And then what does the devil do? He has to go like he did with Jesus. He tempted Jesus on, on three occasions. And when he was done, Satan departed and he never faced Jesus again face to face. The only time after that that Satan himself interacted with Christ that we know of according to scripture was through people. After that point. He only came to Jesus in person one time. And Jesus defeated him and he left. So for us to defeat the enemy, we have to submit ourselves to God, then resist the devil the way God does, the way Jesus did, and then he will flee from us the way that he did from Jesus. Amen? So it's the, it's the Christ-like way of thinking. We cannot fight the way we fight in the real world, in the physical world, so to speak. Okay? The moment we take up these things, we lose the battle and align ourselves with the enemy. James and John wanted to call down fire upon the Samaritans when they disrespected Jesus. But Jesus rebuked them, saying, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. If you've been watching The, uh, the Chosen, which is a great, a great show, it's on an app, and it's, it's a great representation of the life of Jesus. I was watching the episode the other day where this happened, and these guys, they spit at Jesus because they were Samaritans, and Jesus and the disciples were Jews. And uh, regardless of how that happened, the jo James and John kind of flip out. They're like, let's call down fire. Let's, let's do this, you know. And Jesus says, he says, over that? You're ready to call down fire over that? And, and I love it because, and I realize it's probably a little bit modern, but I love how simple it made it. He, he's like, over that? You want to call down fire? You want to destroy human lives? over spit and disrespect. And it's awesome. It's a great thing. I recommend you watch it. Uh, but Jesus quickly identified to them, you don't know what spirit you're of. Luke 9.55. Their carnal response aligned them with a spirit completely contrary to Christ. Jesus doesn't hate his human enemies. He loves them. He doesn't die as a suicide bomber, blowing himself up to hurt his enemies. Instead, he lays down his life on behalf of his enemies, giving his life to save others. It's almost impossible to comprehend this way of thinking. In fact, we cannot understand it without the mind of Christ. Amen. But according to the gospel, that is 
the divine wisdom, the way of Christ-like sacrificial love, that is what overthrows the forces of darkness. Jesus said to his disciples, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves, Matthew 10, 16. The author says, I have to admit that this sounds incredibly unappealing. I don't want to be a sheep. I'm a man. I'm strong. I'm capable of defending myself. I'd rather he had said, I'm sending you out as lions among wolves. I want you to pray on the predators, not become their lunch. But that is the fallen carnal mind speaking. From a natural standpoint, wolves are predators and sheep are prey. But in God's wisdom, the sheep ultimately conquer the wolves. That's hard, man. That is hard to swallow, but it's, it's real, isn't it? In Revelation, when the lion of the tribe of Judah was introduced as the one who conquered, John turned and saw a lamb, a lamb as if it had been slain, Revelation 5, 6. The lion gained victory over his spiritual enemies as a sacrificial lamb. The meek will inherit the earth, Matthew 5, 5. True, we don't always win in the short term. And sometimes we suffer in this demonically controlled world. Even Jesus was surrounded by the strong bulls of Bashan as he hung on the cross. They tore his flesh with their teeth like lions, Psalm 22, 12, and 13. Yet at that moment, he was overcoming those bulls. Only by dying could he conquer the power of death. He rose from the dead with complete victory over his enemies forever. I was watching a video from uh, John Bevere, and uh, we'll, we'll be doing a John Bevere class in the new year probably. Uh, his stuff's awesome. But he was, uh, I forget the topic of the class to be honest because I was so blown away by what he said. He was talking about how we interact with enemies and how we deal with people. And uh, much like this book is saying, there's a natural way that we want to respond to people. And we like to look at the passage in Matthew 12 where Jesus calls the Pharisees vipers. And he calls them down and he, you know, he cracks whips at them and, you know, all this stuff that we, we enjoy. We're like, yes, justice, you know, kind of thing. But John Bevere, he makes a statement that just completely rocks our, our understanding. He says, Jesus was the only man alive who could call them vipers because he was the only man alive who was willing to die for them. Man, that's earth shattering, isn't it? That's the mind of Christ. That's so contrary to the zeitgeist. That's so contrary to the way the world thinks and operates. Even us, man, we've been, I've been serving God a long time. You have too, many of you. And, and how often do we, does something rise up in us when somebody gets smart with us? A lady got smart with me at Target the other night, and I just about, you know, I didn't, I didn't swing at her, nothing like that. But you, you know what I'm saying. When somebody says something, you're not expecting it, and you're like, well, wait, what? Who, who are you? Why are you telling me that? And, and of course, an instance where Jesus is facing down religious elite, educated people, people who, who claim to know God so well they couldn't see him right in front of them. But he was the only one who could call them down because he loved them that much. If we thought like that, that would change our entire way of interacting with people. There, there's a very select few people that I love like that. Three of them are my kids. I love them enough I'm going to get in their face because I'm willing to lay down my life for them, right? But I'll tell you what, there have been plenty of people that I went to youth group with, plenty of people that were in my youth group as a youth leader that I didn't love like that. But I felt, I, I felt like I had a right to call them down, and I didn't. And I gotta repent before God for that. 
So it's, it's this alternative way of thinking, this thing that gets in us that says, oh, man, I want to say, but I won't. I wish I could, but I can't because I don't love them that much yet. But God, develop a love in me. Amen? That's, that needs to be our cry. God, develop a love in us to the point that we can righteously call somebody down not so that we can destroy them, but so that we can build them back up. We don't call our kids down to destroy them, right? We don't, we don't whip them because we want to break them. No, we call them down because we know they're better than that. There's more in them. There's better things within their capability. It's, it's the opposite way of thinking of the zeitgeist. So, only by dying could Jesus conquer the power of death. He rose from the dead with complete victory over his enemies forever. Christ's life so conflicted with the demonic spirit of the age that they clashed in mortal combat. This was no mere rhetorical argument between two ideologies. Jesus didn't battle the satanic way of thinking through a moderated debate. It was war, the ultimate spiritual war that would define eternity. Other rabbis had taught things similar to what Jesus taught, but no one had ever embodied the wisdom and modeled it perfectly. Jesus physically walked out the wisdom of God to the very end, when a bloody corpse and ribbons of mangled flesh lay cold and still in a borrowed tomb. And to all who watched with natural eyes, it must have seemed obvious who won. Roman soldiers stood triumphantly over the dead body of love. But three days later, the earth shook as God's wisdom broke through the crust of thousands of years of demonic thinking that had covered the planet like a thick shell. Oh, what a beautiful expression. God's wisdom breaking through the day that stone rolled away. The next section here is entitled, You Are the Light of the World. He says, Earlier I mentioned that Jesus declared himself to be the light of the world, but that was not the end of the story. Jesus then turned to his disciples and, of course, to us and said, You are the light of the world, Matthew 5, 14. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit and therefore receive the mind of Christ, we become reflections of his light. His way of thinking and living becomes ours. When this happens, we pierce the darkness everywhere we go. He said a city on a hill cannot be hid. Uh, You don't take a light and hide it under a bushel, right? It's all in Matthew chapter 5. We are walking extensions of God's kingdom. This is true spiritual warfare. Our job as Christians is not merely to fight spiritual battles through prayer and intercession. We combat darkness by living like Jesus. How are you going to overcome the darkness in your family? By living like Jesus. How are we going to overcome the darkness in Winchester and Lexington and Mount Sterling and Richmond and all of central Kentucky? By living like Jesus. Not by having lights or fog or the right kind of music or the right length of sermon. It's by living like Jesus. What we do in here is for us. What we do in here is to build ourselves up in our most holy faith. What we do for them out there is to live like what God has put in us in here. That's what it's all about. You want to be on mission? We can do outreaches like we did in Mount Sterling yesterday, and that's awesome. But if you want to be on mission, live like Jesus every day while you're at work. Live like Jesus when you're dealing with your kids and they're driving you nuts. Live like Jesus when you're at Walmart and Kroger or the DMV or in court. Live like Jesus. This is how we overcome the world because it's how he overcame the world. It's not by being powerhouse miracle factories. He did that but he put his arms around people first. He loved, he spoke truth. He didn't raise his voice when he could have. 
So we've all got a long way to go, don't we? But we've got to clarify the mission. We've got to clarify the method, I should say. The mission is clear. Save the world. Save somebody's world. Amen? But how do we do it? Do we get so filled up with the Holy Spirit we prophesy to everybody? Maybe. But do that after you've loved on them. Do that after you've put your arms around them when they hurt. You've called them when they needed somebody. Amen? Be present. One of the greatest things Jesus ever did for the leper, of course, you know, we, we think about the healing, but before he healed him, he touched him. He touched him. Why? Because nobody had ever, nobody had touched the guy in years, probably. Because he lived by himself in a leper colony. The only people he'd ever been around were other diseased people. Listen, the world outside of these walls, they, they hang out with other diseased people. They know exactly what that looks like. But they need people who don't have all that to come along and pat them on the back and say, hey, I know you got this going on, but it's okay. God loves you. I love you. I want to help you. I want to do something for you. Amen? We are the light of the world. Our job is to live like Jesus in this world. Our daily behavior must embody God's thoughts and ways. This may not sound like the most exciting way to fight the demonic spirit, but it is extremely powerful. Again, we're Pentecostal. We like the exciting stuff. We want, we want to speak in tongues and cast out a demon. If you want to do that, you've never done that. Let me just say that. If you want to do that, you have clearly never had that experience. Because trust me, when you're in that experience, you don't, you don't want to be there. You don't want to be there. It's a, it's, an, it's a crazy thing to experience. But God shows up in a mighty way, and it's awesome, and he gets all the glory. And he, and he does because, let me tell you, when you're in that moment, there is nothing adequate in you that can help that person except Jesus. Nothing. And when it's over, that's all you feel. That is all you feel walking out of that situation. It's powerful. We, we like the power stuff. But we got to have truth. We got to have love. Amen. We got to alter our way of thinking. If we can go out of these walls this week and just live like Jesus, then the gifts and all that stuff might come with it. But man, living like Jesus is what's going to make the difference. That's what's going to make the difference in Winchester. Think of it like this. How can we combat the demonic zeitgeist if we are thinking and living in alignment with it? Man, that's it right there. If my reactions are the world's reactions, how can I impact the world? If my way of thinking is the world's way of thinking, how can I make a difference? It's got to be opposite. Paul declares how the demonic zeitgeist will manifest in the last days. He says, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people turn away. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. Look at all these things that are listed here. All these things we see on TV all the time. All these things we see on Facebook all the time. The scariest one in the whole list is the last one, in my opinion. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. I mean, we know Jesus said that when people stand before him, there's going to be people who say, but I did this, this, and this in your name. And he's going to say, I don't even know you. Understand, there are things that just work in the kingdom of God. 
The name of Jesus is powerful by itself. It doesn't need you. If you invoke the name of Jesus, it will do something. It can cast out a demon. It can heal the sick. It can do all that. And Jesus not even know you. Oh, that's terrifying. That's terrifying. Let us never be a place, a church, a family of believers, where we have a form of godliness but deny its power. Listen, the power of God is prophecy and uh, speaking in tongues and healing and casting out demons. That's power. But it's holding your tongue. It's loving the unlovable. Amen. It's reaching out in faith when you should reach out in fear. It's reacting from a, a position of heaven instead of a position of earth. So we have to understand the, the biggest way we combat the enemy in this hour is not just through powerful acts, but through powerful living. That's how we do it, powerful living. He says, you can be sure the description, this description of people in the last day and the last days opposes everything that is of the Father. And we who are children of the light are expected to walk contrary to all that is in the world. In a world where most people live under demonic spell, Jesus' followers have a totally different way of thinking and living. People of the world love themselves. We love not our lives unto losing them, right? That's what the scripture says. They love money. We love sacrifice. We give. We give. And we give not out of self-righteousness. We don't give and take a picture of it and post it online, right, like so many people do. We give out of sacrifice. They are proud and boastful. We are meek and humble. They blaspheme, we worship. They are lawless, we are obedient. They are unthankful, unholy, and unloving. We are grateful, pure, and full of Christ-like charity. They are bitter, we forgive. They slander, we praise. They are brutal, we are gentle. They despise good, we contend for it. I love that. We contend for good. They love pleasure, we love God. Paul repeatedly contrasts this new way of thinking and living with our old way under the dominion of that demonic zeitgeist. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. 1 Corinthians 2.12. I would venture you never saw the fruit of the Spirit as spiritual weapons, but these virtues developed through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives are supernatural. They are heavenly. They come from above, reflecting God's wisdom and exerting divine influence. Oh, that's powerful. Yes, it reflects God's wisdom, but it exerts divine influence. If the fruit of the spirits were as sought after as the gifts of the Spirit, oh, what would the Pentecostal church look like? Amen? You've heard me say this, but every time I get a chance, I like to say it because I want to challenge the mindset that's in us. I've grown up in Pentecost. I've seen, the only thing I've never seen, I've never seen a holy roller. I've never seen that. Somebody roll on the floor, and I've never seen that. But I think I've seen just about everything else. And I tell you, we put a lot of emphasis on that demonstration of the Spirit. And it's easy to do because it's, it's sensual, right? It appeals to our senses. We see people strung out across the altar, laying in the floor. We're like, whoa, God was in the place. What about when the truth of the Word comes? God was just as much in the place. 
Amen. What about when God challenges us to love beyond our boundaries? That's God too. What about having joy in a season where you shouldn't? That's powerful. As powerful as prophecy in your life. I can hang out 20 years waiting on prophecy. I can have joy right now. Man, the fruit of the Spirit. We would seek after. You know, the first thing people ask when, when they find out you're Pentecostal, what do they ask? One of two questions. Do you speak in tongues? Do you handle snakes? That's what I always get. Could we change that? Do we handle snakes? Yeah. What if we change that to, oh, you're Pentecostal? Man, you guys love people like I have never seen anybody love somebody. That could be what Church of the Living God becomes known for. You guys have faith like I have never seen people have faith. You guys are long-suffering. Like I have, ne- I have never known a church to be patient with somebody like you guys are. Oh, man. Can we seek after those things? I know Paul said to seek the good gifts, but not at the expense of the fruit. That's right. Jesus said that he wants us to produce disciples. That he wants us to produce gifts that remain. No fruit. fruit that remains. Fruit that remains. Our giftedness is not our fruitfulness. Let us be Pentecostal people who are so in the word, who have the mind of Christ, that we have peace before we have prophecy. Or better yet, let's do peace and prophecy together. Let's see what that does. Man, sorry, that's my soapbox on the gifts. Amen. I love the gifts. Listen, I spoke in tongues when I was nine years old, first time. I, I have been laid out just like I was talking about. I've been doubled over. I've been drunk. I've cried. I've done all that drunk in the spirit, all of it. Jumped up and down, ran around the room, all that. But man, man, when the love of God hits you, when you have supernatural peace that passes understanding, oh my gosh, it's powerful, it's powerful. I remember those moments as much as I remember the the action moments. All right, sorry. These virtues developed through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives are supernatural. They're heavenly. Oh, that's so good. They are heavenly. They come from above, reflecting God's wisdom and exerting divine influence. That means they directly contradict the demonic zeitgeist at work in the world. For example, faith operates not by what is seen, but by the word of God. You guys remember Bishop Miller? He said, what is the opposite of faith? What is the opposite of faith? It's sight. Sight. What we see challenges what we know. Faith is a Christ-like way of thinking, not a carnal one. It aligns us with God's mind through which his power flows into the earth. I've heard songs from Christian rock and rap groups that talk about assassinating demons or blowing up Satan's kingdom. These ideas have always seemed quite silly to me. Satan is not worried about bullets or bombs. What is extremely dangerous to the satanic system is the cornucopia of virtues that emerges from the Spirit's unique way of thinking. Love, sacrifice, humility, patience, faith, consecration, self-discipline, holiness, joy, meekness, and many more. Man, powerful, powerful section. This next section is called Battles and Builders. Earlier, I referred to the Sermon on the Mount as spiritual warfare. It represents the divine thought pattern that directly contradicts and therefore attacks the demonic zeitgeist. This clash of kingdoms is what the cosmic war is about. If we want to fight on the side of the Lamb, there's only one way to do it. We must have what Paul calls the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16. Our thoughts, beliefs, actions, and lifestyle must fully align 
with Christ. This is exactly what Paul means when he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will, Romans 12, 2. To conform to the pattern of this world is to come under the influence of the Antichrist spirit, whether we realize it or not, with the wrong mindset. Even God's children can fight on the wrong side. Remember, Jesus called Peter, his disciple and good friend, Satan, because you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's, Matthew 16, 23, NASB. When we adopt the world's way of thinking, we give its zeitgeist admission into our minds, mouths, and atmosphere. Thus, we promote and advance a satanic system. This is why Jesus is so extreme in his call to follow him. Jesus is black and white in his teaching. There isn't much nuance in his positions. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters, Matthew 12, 30. Jesus' imagery here refers to the gathering and scattering of sheep. Who gathers the sheep? The shepherd. What gathers the sheep? A predator. Ooh, oh, that's good. Who and what? You are either a shepherd or a wolf. There is no in-between. He explicitly says, if you're not with me, you're against me. There are no neutral souls and no neutral zones. There is no Switzerland in the spiritual world. There are only two teams. You can fight for God or you can fight for the devil. Those are your only two choices, and it's easy to know which team you are on. If you have not made a conscious decision to serve God, then by default you fight for the other side against God. Many other passages express the same sentiment. For example, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other, Matthew 6, 24. Notice there is no option to love one and just be okay with the other. The choice is not between which one you like more and which you like less. The choice is between love and hate. The choice Jesus gives us is so stark. He doesn't limit his love-hate choice to two masters. He takes it even further. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Wow. That's a rough one to read. That's a rough passage to get through. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 26 and 27 ESV. This is radical by any standard. He says, but I'm not cherry-picking these passages to make my point. This sheer radicalism comprises the majority of Jesus' teaching. He is unambiguous about the requirements to follow him. His kingdom cannot afford people who serve Jesus without full surrender. Not only are they unhelpful, but they are also actively harmful. That's, That's a powerful statement. Not only are they unhelpful, but they are also actively harmful. If someone claims to be a Christian but continues to live under the spell of the demonic zeitgeist, on a practical level, he does not represent Christ. He represents Satan. There are only two main spirits in the world. There's the spirit of Christ and the spirit of Antichrist. To align with one is to reject the other. The way Jesus sees it, if we are not actively connected to him and bearing the fruit of the spirit, then we are destructive, whether we realize it or not. We are being used by the devil, whether we know it or not. Luke 14, 28 to 30 says, For which one of you, when he wants to build a watchtower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to finish it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is unable to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Let's see. 
When you claim Christ, you are claiming the loftiest name there is. As if you are constructing a huge tower or a mansion, people will take notice of your enormous claim. If you take on the name of Christ but are not able to finish what you started, you will bring shame on your name and his. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Exodus 20, verse 7. This is not just about using God as a swear word. It is about bringing reproach upon the name of the Lord by taking it or using it in vain. If you call yourself a Christian, you have taken upon yourself the name of Jesus, the name above every other name. That means his reputation is attached to yours. You had better take that seriously. That's powerful. That's powerful. You'd better take that seriously. Lukewarm Christian, you are one of the devil's most powerful weapons against the gospel. When people look at you and see the life you live and realize your life is no different than theirs, they become convinced they don't need Jesus. Remember the famous quote attributed to Gandhi, I like your Christ, but I dislike your Christians. In other words, the lives of Christians were incongruous with the Christ they claim to serve. This lack of Christ-likeness among Christians is one of the biggest deterrents to people accepting the gospel. We are at war. We cannot merely don the uniform of God's kingdom while fighting half-heartedly for both sides. This is dishonorable, dangerous, and treasonous. All right. Let me read one thing because I'm out of time. Last section, titled, Take Up Your Cross. I've used a number of metaphors in this chapter. Allow me to call on one more. This is not my metaphor, but one used by Jesus himself. He said that if we want to follow him, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Matthew 16, 24. Earlier, we talked about the wisdom of the cross, how it contradicted all worldly wisdom and dealt a fatal blow to the demonic zeitgeist. Here, Jesus instructs us that if we want to be his disciples, we carry that same cross. But what does it mean to take up the cross? The cross is a symbol of suffering and death. A person who carries a cross is on his way to be crucified. He is a dead man walking. The old carnal demonic way of thinking cannot simply be changed. It must be killed. Mm. Jesus requires us to lay aside the person we used to be and to take up a new identity, a new pattern of thinking, and a new way of living. We may live in the same physical body, but our old self is dead. We've been transformed by the renewing of our minds. This is precisely what is required for effective spiritual warfare. Any soldier without a cross on his back is fighting for Satan. The battle rages not only in the world, but also within us. We are where the change must begin. And that's the end of the chapter. Man, isn't that great? Have you enjoyed that chapter? Next week, we're going to be in chapter 6, which is called Spiritual Warfare Demystified. We're going to get into the, uh, the nitty-gritty, so to speak, all right? I, I, I love, as we wrap up, I love what this is saying to us, what it's challenging in us, our way of thinking, our way of living. I love that it draws a stark contrast between the air, the world around us, what we're living in every single day outside of these walls, and what we hear while we're inside these walls, and hopefully what we're hearing when we're praying and reading at home. So we have to be vigilant. We have to understand that there is a wind that is behind all of these things. And it's not love. It's not tolerance. It's not about any of that. It's not about that. It's about destroying people that God loves. That's what it's about. Exactly. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's it. There's no nuance to it. That's it. He wants your kids and your grandkids. He wants you. He wants your marriage. He wants to take everything that looks like God down. 
And, and we can't be a party to that, can we? Amen. Let's pray real quick. Father, we thank you so much for this word. God, this challenging word, Lord, that challenges us on so many levels. Lord, we ask that it would just become part of us, Lord, that we wouldn't walk out and forget all of it. But that as we go through this week, as we progress through our life, God, that we think about the wind that's blowing versus what you've put in us. The, the demonic way of thinking versus your way of thinking. God, help us at every turn, every instance where we have an opportunity to be human, God, that you would make us instead Christ-like. Lord, we, we give you permission to do that in Jesus' name. Let this house become a house that is known for power, sure, but known for love and peace and joy and kindness and long-suffering and all the fruit that you have for the Christian to bear. And God, let us bear fruit that remains. We thank you for it, Jesus. Move in this place in a mighty way today, Lord. Be lifted up. Heal hurting people. Save lost folks. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening today to The Living Godcast. We trust and pray that you are blessed by today's word. If you would like to contact us for prayer or for more information about Church of the Living God, please visit our Facebook page at WinCityCOLG or give us a call at 859-745-1865.